everybody. Good morning. Great to see you. Hope you had a lovely uh, week this past week of the 4th. Warm weather has arrived. Kind of super. Uh, if I have trouble putting words together, I've spent two weeks with uh, five grandkids, all five and under. So now my vocabulary is uh, slowly disintegrating into things like, uh, ooh, you cute little guy, you, you. So, you know, if I slip into that, please forgive me. Good, uh, <laughs> good, good to see you. This is a second of a series on the fruit of the Spirit that uh, Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 5. We learned last week that uh, the church has at least four purposes, one of which is to develop people. That there are three areas in which the Lord wants to develop us. One is in our life purpose, the second is in our relationships, and the third is in our character. The fruit of the Spirit has to do with our character. And that one of the reasons we want to develop our character is so that we're the kind of person where other people can come into our life and find shade and restoration in the midst of the difficulties of life. And the more our character matches the Spirit of God, the more we provide shade for other people, those we love and those we know, those that the Lord brings into our life. This morning, we're going to look at the first of those fruit, and that is the topic of love. Let's look at a couple verses. One that all of us know, in fact, it is often considered one of the one or two most commonly known scriptures in all of the Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then John writes in John chapter 15, verse 13, great love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. I'm reading a novel right now by Martha Cooley. It's mostly about a, a librarian at a university and his wife. His wife is suffering from mental illness. And the entire middle section of this novel is the, uh, is the sporadic journal that she, she keeps while institutionalized. As you read the journal, you see a person's mental health began to simply disintegrate until eventually, after six years of being institutionalized, she takes her own life. Martha Cooley painfully illustrates the inner life of a woman who seems incapable of either receiving love or giving love. And finally, in that tension and dilemma, life simply overwhelms her. At the same time I'm reading that, I'm spending two weeks with five grandkids, ages one to five. And uh, you know, it's an, ama- it's an amazing thing when love enters into a relationship. We used to make uh, fun of our son Nathan who travels quite a bit and he and his wife now live in China. Uh, it didn't seem to matter where, where they were going and what airline they were taking, they always got seated next to the crying baby. And uh, after the flight, he'd talk about how uh, either behind them or in front of them or next to them was uh, some parent who had a crying baby. And then he and Laura had babies. And he got off the plane from China one summer and he said, you know, we are the people that we, we always 
we always talked about. Uh, one of their babies was uh, kind of colicky coming home, and it's like a 12-hour flight from China, and, and so it was like 12 hours of unrest and noise and restlessness and crying. But as we listen to him talk about that story, it's amazing how a crying baby looks through the eyes of a parent rather than through the eyes of simply another passenger. Because a parent is looking through the eyes of love, whereas someone who's totally detached is simply looking through the eyes of comfort. So in the last two weeks of mayhem at our house, we're constantly looking through the eyes of love. And we see cuteness where other people would see irritation. (laughs) because that's the way love works. And so as we look at this theme, we're looking something at something that's very close to the heart of God. Now what is love? Let me give you the definition that I work with. There's numerous Greek words for love, but the primary word for love in the New Testament can be described as this, an emotion, a decision, a duty, a choice, a commitment to align my heart with, to invest my life in, to sacrifice my life for another. It is an emotion, a decision, a duty, a choice, a commitment to align my heart with, to invest my life in, and to sacrifice my life for another. That kind of love, God tells us, is at the heart of the moral universe. And so there are four things about love we're going to look at briefly this morning. But as we look at these things, keep in mind this question, how do I define success? Because the Bible and Jesus and the kingdom of God is saying God defines success by the capacity for love that we have. That's his definition of success. How do we define success? So number one, love is life's highest priority. We are designed for attachment. It is uh, the PhD work of Peter Holmes who did a lot of study in the implications of the Trinity and that social bond of the Trinity and how that relates to how you and I are created. We are designed for capacity. The Bible says God is love. Now sometimes you might hear someone say, you know, we need to keep, uh, the Bible talks about truth and love and we need to keep them in balance. I don't think that's accurate at all. We are to look at truth through the lens of love. Because truth that is not looked at through the lens of love can easily become toxic, hard, and punitive. We are intended to look at truth through the lens of love. Even Jesus himself said about truth that it was personal before it is ever propositional. He said, I am truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is defined primarily from a relational, personal perspective, not through a propositional perspective. 
The Bible says, for example, love covers a multitude of sins. It isn't saying that there are not sins or that there are not many sins, but it is saying that if I look at that sin or sins through the lens of love, it has a different implication, a different look than if I'm just looking at it from a propositional standpoint. Love covers a multitude of sins. So love is life's highest priority. Now, I I like propositions. I read philosophy for fun. My idea of recreation is what I call recreational thinking. And one of the journeys of my life has been to move from the value of propositions to the value of relationships. That has been a long journey, and it has not been an easy journey for me. But I look back on where I think the church has been, and I grieve at its preoccupation with proposition without looking at propositions through the eyes of love, just as Jesus did that. So love is life's highest priority, and that is what defines success in the kingdom of God. That is what defines success in the kingdom of God. Let's look at a, let's look at a second one. Love is life's most notable expression. One of the neat studies in the Bible is the life of John. John wrote one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he did an unusual thing in the book of John. He consistently referred to himself because he's part of the story he's writing. He was one of the 12 disciples. Not only was John one of the 12, he was one of the three in the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. He walked with Jesus, saw the miracles, heard the teaching. I mean, the, the stories he could tell Imagine sitting around the campfire after Jesus has died and resurrected and ascended back into heaven and the disciples roasting marshmallows and making s'mores are talking about the things they saw. I mean, what, what, what kind of stories they had. And in the midst of that, what is the single most important thing in John's life? In this narrative John has of him walking with Jesus, what is the single most important part of the narrative? And in the book of John, six times we find out. Because whenever John talks about himself, he uses this phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved. The most significant thing in John's life wasn't that he was at the feeding of the 5,000 or that he was at the Sermon on the Mount or that he was with Jesus in the midst of all the confrontations with the Pharisees and all the teaching and preaching and healing. The most significant thing in John's life was that he knew Jesus loved him. Now, you and I, uh, if you've heard me preach before, you know that I joke around about being a, not particularly a hugger. And uh, I have a German-Norwegian background, and uh, the Nordic people are not always known for uh, up close and personal. 
But you know, my dad was a very affectionate man. And we never parted without three things happening. We hugged one another. Then we told each other we loved one another. And then we kissed each other. And my last memory of my father in the nursing home in Williston, North Dakota, as his mind began to slip at 86 after an injury, was that while I was visiting with him and mom, he, walk, he went, walked down with his cane down by the elevator because he knew that's where I would leave. And he sat by a chair to make sure he didn't miss my leaving. And as I walked down the, the hallway and got to the elevator, there was my dad. And sitting in that chair in an old kind of t-shirt, thermal t-shirt that he liked to wear. My dad loved uh, wearing layers, so... Uh, He always had a thermal t-shirt on. I bent down and I hugged him and he hugged me. I told him I loved him and he told me that he loved me. I kissed him on the cheek and he kissed me. And the thing I remember was that he hadn't shaved. Nobody had shaved him for three or four days. And so I still remember the feel of the stubble of of his face on my cheek. I've been in this world long enough and in this business long enough to know there are people who've never experienced something like that. And in the last 13 months of my dad's life, because of the move from a farm he had lived on for 85 years into a nursing home, medical issues, I traveled from here to Williston, North Dakota, a thousand miles round trip, once a month for 13 months. When my dad died, I had no unfinished business. I knew that he loved me. I knew that he knew I loved him. And the consequence was my soul was at peace because of it. Love's most notable expression, life's most notable expression is love. Now you and I have a lot of things we are known for. For many years, people were primarily known for their work. What do you do? In our generation, people are more known for their leisure activities or hobbies. Some people, their their primary expression of life They intend to be power. I have sat in restaurants and watched how people talk to waiters and waitresses. I think this this person's drunk on power. They just found somebody littler than they think they are and they can push them around. That irritates me beyond words. I saw it just this week and I thought, who in the world do they think they are? Sometimes we're known by our possessions or our status or standing in any kind of social system. But the Bible says, and Jesus says, that the kingdom's most notable expression is love. Behold, the Bible says of the disciples, how they loved one another. Not with some idealistic purpose, idealistic picture. They were very human and very fallible. And yet love became a growing 
part of their life to the point that they allowed their own lives to be taken from them, most of them, for the sake of the love they had of the Savior. And you and I can increase our capacity for love. I may start by just loving those who love me, but the Bible tells me that I can increase my capacity. Eventually, I might be able to love the poor, for example. We may or may not be aware that in the theology of the Christian church in America, there developed a strain of theology where if people were poor, it was considered a sign of a moral deficit. The robber barons said, God gave me my money, so if you don't have money, that's your problem between you and God, and if you don't have any money, you must have done something to irritate God. So poverty became considered the result of moral deficiency, and since I'm not responsible for your moral deficiency, I'm not responsible for the poor. A year ago, I taught a course in the minor prophets at a Bible college, I hadn't spent much time in the minor prophets. For one thing, I feel bad for them. The only reason the minor prophets are not called major prophets is because their books are shorter. I thought, really, if they'd have just added more words, they could have been considered major. But poor Isaiah, you know, he's got, he's got words, words, and words, and so he's a major prophet. And uh, some of these other guys got like one chapter, and so they are minor prophets. You, you study the minor prophets, The issue of poverty, the care of the poor, the care of the widow, the care of the orphan is astounding. It just screams out. So I might develop the capacity to love those who love me, but I might develop the capacity to love the poor. And eventually, the Bible says, I might develop the capacity to love my enemies. A husband and wife went to a marriage counselor. The marriage counselor said, well, you have to learn to love one another again. He said to the husband, can you, can you love your wife as your wife? He says, no. He says, can you love her as a friend? Because the Bible tells, no. He says, well then, can you love her as an enemy? It doesn't matter what level you're working at. God not just expects love, but gives us the capacity to love people. So love is life's most notable expression. Let's look at the third. Love is life's greatest joy. So we're at the Livingston Rodeo where it was 18 below zero. (laughs) All right, all right. Truth and love. Consider the statement through the eyes of love. (laughs) It was cold on Thursday night at the Livingston Rodeo. We... We piled in winter coats. I mean, winter coats. What in the world? So we're sitting there at the rodeo, and there's Katie. Katie's four years old. She's got a cowboy hat on, and she is excited. And after the rodeo, her favorite part were the horses. And that's good. But Katie and Camden, who's five, were sitting behind us. At the end, they turn all those lights off, and then they start the fireworks. And I look back at Camden's face, and he was standing, his face was up, his mouth was open, and there was an expression of wonder on his face that was worth every degree 
of coal in that day. They just, just wonder as he watched those fireworks. And I've, I've reflected on that since that night. And I've reflected on the warmth I feel when I think of that picture. That we're there at that rodeo and he is expressing such an amazing wonder. Uh, I and my son Nathan and my son Nolan and Camden and Stace, Camden and Stace are both five years old, we camped overnight just for a camping experience. So I live at Four Corners, the North Star Division, and we camped at the Hot Springs right south of Four Corners. And the, the fun part of camping at the hot springs there is that, you know, the people next to you, they got a Texas license plate and the people on the other side have a Tennessee license plate. And so then you get to chatting. You say, well, where are you from? Oh, Austin, Texas. And how about you? I just outside of Knoxville. Where are you from? I said, well, if you stand on your tiptoes, you can see our house. <laughs> and they, they look at you rather quizzically about, all right. So I gone to Costco and I bought this little packet of uh, three camp lights. They're little and light and they take these little batteries and you, you pull it up and then you hit a button and then it's white bright and then another push and it's white dim but another push and it's red and then the fourth one, it's blinking red. And so I gave Camden and Stace a camp light that night. I tell you, imagination run wild. They were everything from monsters to, to uh, you know, superheroes, and they worked all those different lights. The greatest joy. The people having the most fun in life are the people who are loving the most. You may, may remember some years ago, uh, a news story out of 2020 where they'd gone to where the rich play in the world, where things are priced just in order for you to show how much money you have because the price of something has no relationship to its value. And uh, they were over in Monaco in Europe. And the cameras of the secular show went around, went to villas renting for $100,000 a week. And it went to yachts where they were having parties and uh, we went to restaurants with obscene prices for their food, and on and on. And at the end, this, in this secular show, with no religious or spiritual intention, the person bringing that story said, did you notice one thing about all these pictures? And they quickly ran us through all those pictures again. Did you notice that in every setting, we could not find one person that was smiling Because life really is not about that. Life is about loving. And so the greatest joy of our life is when we are loving the most. We are most human. We are most created in the image of God when love is the highest expression of our life. And so love is life's greatest joy. The Bible says of Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. This sacrificial act, but it was shrouded in the joy that was going to be around that event. 
And then we're going to throw in one more that's not on your notes page. Love is life's most worthy sacrifice. Everybody needs a cause. You and I were born to have a cause. Whether we are 20, 60, or 80, we're not designed to flourish in our soul if we don't have a cause, if there's not something noble that we're pursuing. The Bible says of Jesus, in that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. He had a cause. He said, I must be about my father's business. And so loving something to the level that I'm willing to sacrifice for it. I am always looking at my children and grandchildren thinking what I can do that would help them. I mean, authentically help them. What, what can I do to help them? Life's hard enough. Is there something I can do to help them? Love is life's most worthy sacrifice. Do you and I have a cause? We're inspired when we, when we watch the movie Schindler's List. A man who gave up everything he had to save 1,200 Jews in World War II. Or Hacksaw Ridge and Desmond Doss, who though a pacifist saved 75 injured soldiers in the Battle of Okinawa. Or Joseph, who saved his people from starvation. Or Esther, who saved her people from annihilation. Or Moses, who saved his people from the oppression of Egypt. Or Elijah, who saved his people from the spiritual deformity that was going on under Ahab and Jezebel. Or Gideon, who rescued his people from the oppression of the Midianites. The Bible is full of people who sacrificed everything they had, risked everything. And remember, the risk takers have all the stories. It's one thing to go to the movie and watch some great story. Well, that was good. But the reason there's a story there is because there was risk there. You and I were designed to take those kinds of risks. So the highest value of the kingdom, the most notable aspect of the kingdom of God, the thing that God says he uses as the primary barometer to define success in our life is our capacity, our growing devotion to the pursuit of becoming a person who loves It is the highest priority, the most notable expression, the greatest joy, and the worthy sacrifice. And what can I do in the face of that? If I say, "Ah, I want to leave leave this room and do something, what can I do? Well, I'll tell you one place to start. You can start by deciding, I'm going to become a lovable person. (laughs) Am, Am I a lovable person? Or am I angry and punitive? temperamental and unpredictable, self-righteous and judgmental? Is it easy for me to remember the failures and failings of other people? What do I need to do to become a lovable person so that I become a model, so that I become a picture of what love looks like? Because Jesus said, if you want to know what the Father's like, look at me. 
What do I have to do to become a lovable person? The second is fruit. The, the word fruit is actually an agricultural term that Jesus is using here in a primarily agricultural uh, nation. And if you're going to grow fruit, there's at least three things you would do. Number one, you'd make sure that the, the trees or the plants are nourished. What kind of nourishment do I need in my life so that I can be a producer of love? You would prune. That's an, that's an issue of focus. You would ward off enemies like bugs and disease. Things that are toxic and work against love. So I, I would cultivate. Second, I would concentrate. We, we conform to whatever we concentrate on. So if I concentrate on love, I begin to conform to love. I begin to move to that. The Bible says, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be. Not the other way around. Wherever your treasure is, whatever you learn to treasure, your heart follows that investment. And so I would concentrate. The third, I would collaborate. If I want to learn how to love, I'd find people who know how to love. If I want to learn how to love my wife better, I'd find people who know how to love their wives. If I want to learn how to love my children, I would hang around people who know how to love their children. If I want to learn how to love the poor, I would hang around people who love the poor. It's difficult to love without contact. And so you hang around people. So when I cultivate and concentrate and collaborate, then I begin to develop love in my life. So I think that's what the Lord wants to say to us today. Is that how I'm defining success? Is love my measuring mark? to define whether my life has been worth living or not. And the Lord invites us into that, for God so loved the world. For Jesus laid down his life for another because he loved. And so we choose to love. Let's set our things aside and bow our heads as we finish up this morning. Our heads bowed in prayer and eyes closed. No one's going to embarrass you. But we believe that every Sunday morning there are spiritual transactions that go on in this room. That means we believe that the Holy Spirit is here and present and speaking to us. So we anticipate that you heard something from the Lord today. What was that? Would you take a moment and allow him to magnify that? It might have been a scripture you heard, possibly something I said, but it may well, just as well be something the Holy Spirit surfaced in your spirit this morning. Would you see that as a word of life? never a word of judgment a word of life would you see that as God's invitation to increase your capacity in a given area of your life 
so that people will want to come and seek the shade of your life to be nourished by you because you know how to love. Take a moment and invite the Lord to magnify what he has said to you as we wait for a second. Father, we are grateful for the journey you take us on, that you never leave us as you find us, even though you love us as you find us. So we're on a journey these weeks about the fruit of the Spirit. Lord, for what you have said to each of us individually this morning, I pray that we will embrace that, that you will give each of us the ability to embrace that, that we will receive it as a word of life from you, that we will pursue it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information, or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.